you will stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, hey, just a couple things before we uh, get into our scripture reading. Uh, two things. One, uh, I know after service is kind of, or towards the end of service, it's easy to kind of duck out real quick and maybe make a quick dash to lunch. I want to encourage you to stay. We have a really encouraging announcement for you uh, that we want you to, to, to hear. And then also on Revelation, uh, I would encourage you to be here next week. It's going to be the Sunday that's going to set up so much of what we're going to do. <laughs> so much of preaching through Revelation is clearing out the brush. Um, and so we're going to do a lot of that next Sunday, so I hope to, to see you then. But all right, for our scripture reading today, comes out of Matthew 7, starting in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and be on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this greatest sermon ever to be preached in Matthew 5 through 7. What a, what a privilege it is that we don't often even recognize that your son, the son of God, who had taken on flesh, preached a sermon. And all throughout these last three months, we've been able to hear what he has to say about the good life, what his vision is, what he calls us to. And now, as we conclude Jesus' sermon, I ask that you would give us the grace of decision and of repentance and of resolve, all the things that we need in order to not just move on from what Jesus has been teaching us all along. And so Father, I, I pray that you would help us to see the ways that maybe our hearts are half in, half out with you, and that you would give us the grace to be able to, to go all in with the teaching of your son and with the person of your son. All that he's taught us and all that he is to us. And so Father, would you unite your power with my weak words and minister to us this morning? For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. 
As an avid fan of trash TV, not a secret, I've noticed lately an interesting trend. So, so trash TV has always revolved around one thing, drama. <laughs> we love the drama. No one watches trash TV or reality shows for any other reason than that we love the drama. But the drama of trash TV, I think, again, as an avid consumer, has taken a shift lately. Before, the, the drama that would suck us all in would be just some dysfunctional relationship like 90 Day Fiance, right? Anybody else? Great show. We think to ourselves in that drama, there's no way they're going to make it in the long haul. How can, how can they not see how terrible of a relationship it is? How can they not see how this person is taking advantage of them? But I've noticed a, a trend in these trash, trash TV shows. The drama of these shows has shifted away from just the dysfunctional relationships of crazy people, and now it revolves more around the drama of choice. They have more choices now. Shows like The Bachelor have always long been driven by this drama of choice, but the show, these new shows that keep popping up that uh, revolve around the same thing, things like Temptation Island, <laughs> And don't admit whether you watch that show. This is a church, guys, okay? <laughs> Love is Blind, or the new Netflix series, The Ultimatum. These shows allow people to explore their choices. And they're given a, a number of people to choose from. The whole show is built around whether they will stay with the person that they came into the show with, or, or maybe if they've met another person that they want to start a new relationship with. They are given a number of people to choose from, all in hopes of forming that connection that they think they're missing with their original partner. It's the drama of choice. Who will they walk away with? They have all the options they could want, and it's just a matter of finding what suits them best. Now, for those of you who don't watch Trash TV, you experience this same drama of choice. Our lives are lived today with the luxury of choice. We have a lot of options to choose from. You can have whatever you want. Companies put together slogans like, have it your way. Because they know that the best way to build business is to provide the customer with as many options as possible. We have as much as we could want however we want it. And living in an individualized world, we are offered the luxury of choice in everything, from everything from how you want your burger to, how you, to who you want to swipe right on in your dating app. <laughs> That's the whole point of, of, of dating apps, is choice. Let me, let me provide you a, a number of choices for you to have. We have the luxury of choice today, which is why, friends, the conclusion that Jesus gives for his Sermon on the Mount may upset us if we really let it land on us. Jesus concludes his sermon in these verses with the call to decide, make your choice. And he's laid out his vision for the good life and has given us pictures of what it looks like to live under his lordship and his kingdom. And now you have to decide. The choice is given to you, but the options are so much fewer than what you are used to. In each of these concluding illustrations, Jesus offers only two options. 
And we need to let that sit on us this morning. Because we all just want to have, we want, to, we, want, we want more choices. We want more options. Surely Jesus can't be so narrow-minded, right? Wrong. Jesus provides two choices, two options for you to take in conclusion to this Sermon on the Mount. There's no adding another one. And in many ways, the decision point of these two options will filter out who is really his disciple and who is not. If you choose one option, you walk toward and with Jesus. If you choose the other, you walk away from him. There's a decision that has to be made and the options are only two. Jesus did not preach this, this whole sermon in Matthew 5 through 7 in order to give you life hacks that you can just pick up on and move away with. He doesn't want you to just move on. He wants you to decide whether you're going to follow him or not, whether you're going to receive everything that he's taught. Is he Lord or is he not? We'll see as we make our own choice. And so let's, let's explore the options that Jesus gives here. And I want to look at all of these illustrations that he gives. Uh, and we're going to go relatively quickly through the first two uh, and then kind of linger on these last two illustrations. So first, there are only two ways to walk. Listen to this. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There are two ways to walk in your spiritual life. And Jesus here identifies one as wide and easy, and the other as narrow and difficult. And, and, and I want to zero in on the, the difficulty levels Jesus describes with each of these ways. The first way, which he says leads to destruction, Jesus identifies it as easy. It's an easy way to walk. Now, whether, whether you're a Christian or not, life is hard in many places. We, we live in a fallen world and and Jesus is not here saying that if you choose to not follow him, your life is then going to be easy. I, I don't believe that. Life lived in a fallen world is, is always going to encounter difficulty and pain. So Jesus isn't saying that if you choose to not follow him, you're just going to go off and get to live the easy life that you have. No, what he's saying, the ease that Jesus speaks of here might be better translated intuitive. The way that eventually leads to destruction is one that we find intuitive to walk down. It's, it's a way that matches and complements our natural way of thinking. And so in, in that sense, it is easy <laughs> in that it affirms what we already think and believe. But this intuitive natural way of living, Jesus says, leads to destruction. As, as Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. There is a way that seems right, but its way leads to death. 
Now, already this is a strong warning to each of us here. There is a way that makes sense to you, that caters to you, that feels right to you, and its end is death. It's a way of living that if you're not careful, if you're not aware, will cater to you and make you so comfortable the whole way, all the way up until the moment that we find destruction. The way toward destruction is often the most intuitive one to our fallen natural minds. Let me put it that way. It's easy, it feels right. Let, let me illustrate it this way. So, I grew up in Texas, and a big thing in Texas is cattle. Anybody here own cattle? No? I didn't own cattle, I was in Dallas. It's not like, it's not like I was riding around on a horse the whole time. But anyways, you know, the meat industry is really big in Texas, and for anyone who's vegan or vegetarian, I just wanna put out a, a trigger warning here. We're gonna talk, talk about beef and how we get it. <laughs> One of the ways that the meat industry has kind of zeroed in on on how to get the best beef possible out of an animal is that they've realized that one of the things that causes the, the meat of an animal to not necessarily spoil but not be as good is the stress hormone that comes into it that kind of floods its body as soon as it's about to be slaughtered. And so to solve that, the meat industry has, has done something really unique. They've actually created little ways for cattle to, to enter into the slaughterhouse that mimics everything about their normal part of the day. And they're just kind of walking along, everything looks normal, there's even paintings or structures that make it look like they're not in a slaughterhouse, and they're just kind of walking their way just completely, it's intuitive to them. Oh, I've, I've walked this way before, I've seen these things before, all the way up until the moment that it narrows and narrows and narrows and then the cow is killed. And that, I think, is so much of, of what Jesus is talking about here. That we, we, we walk and we live these lives that are just intuitive, that make sense to us. It's nothing out of the norm. It's never difficult. We're never uncomfortable. It seems right, and if it seems right, if I'm never uncomfortable, it's gotta be right, right? Jesus says no. There are many ways in which what seems right to us is the way to death. There is a way of life that seems right to you, that never disturbs you, that never contradicts you. And because of that, it seems so convincing. It caters to what is natural in us, and because of that, we think it's the way of life. And that's what's screamed to us so often in our culture today, right? Do what seems right for you. And Jesus here warns, that's not the way to go. Just because it's easy doesn't mean it's right. The way of life that Jesus lays out is often what is most unnatural to us. The way to life is the way that often squeezes us and presses us, the way that, that contradicts so much of what we would come up ourselves. It, it, it's that way that actually leads to life. Is it narrow? Yes. Is it difficult? Yes. But it's like, it's like a difficult hike where you just gotta, you gotta hack through some brush in order to stay on the trail, but then eventually you come out to an open and peaceful clearing 
with the view that you've been waiting for the whole time. That is the way that Jesus lays out. There are two ways to live. There's a way that is easy and wide, that will lead to destruction, a way that seems right to man, or there is the narrow path where few are found, but life ends at that path. Two ways. Second illustration Jesus gives is around two trees. Two trees that bear different types of fruit. And and these two trees are meant to symbolize the, the fruit or the results of the teachers that we let into our life. Jesus warns us that there are going to be teachers that act like Christian teachers, but in the end are actually what he calls ravenous wolves, who are, who are capitalizing on the opportunity for a meal. Jesus gives a warning, and he, he says that the way we differentiate between the faithful teachers of the gospel and those who are simply capitalizing on an opportunity is by the fruit of their lives. If they are a false teacher leading you astray, if they're not really of Jesus, their life will not produce the fruit of the Spirit, it, at least not for very long. Jesus is warning us to be prudent about who we let teach us. I want to say that again. Jesus is warning you to be prudent about who you are letting teach you. And, and it's at this moment that I want to provide a, a pastoral caution. Jesus is warning about teachers who look like they belong to him, but in the end, their lives betray that fact. And so Jesus tells us to keep a close eye on the lives of those who teach us. That's his commendation here. But here's my concern for us, friends. In an age where all of our teachers come through social media or through podcasts, how in the world are you going to know whether they are actually faithful teachers who belong to Jesus? If, if Jesus here tells us to keep a close eye on what the life of a teacher produces in order to know whether you should listen to them or not, that means to me that we should have a caution around the celebrity market that we, that we feast at so often. You don't know them. Some of your most meaningful teachers, some of your most safe teachers might be local. And I'm not saying that because I'm your local pastor. Listen, there are so many better preachers than Joshua Searcy. So many better. I love podcasts. I love, in some ways, celebrity preachers. I became a Christian because of a celebrity preacher, and so much of what I think and even how I am was shaped by watching that celebrity preacher and learning. I'm not against that. I'm not saying don't go listen to podcasts or shut off social media, but here's what I know. So much of the disillusionment with Christianity that I find in people is due to the fact that they let someone shape them deeply who they did not know personally. And then later, some scandal came out or some great fall from ministry and then all of a sudden the person who was taught is left reeling and confused. Instead, 
we're gonna take what Jesus says here seriously, maybe we should let our local teachers, which is not just me, we have elder candidates, we have leaders, we should let our local teachers be the ones that actually shape us the most. Those are the teachers who you can actually analyze. You'll, you'll never know a faithful teacher from a false teacher simply through social media. And so instead, we should be letting those who are closest to us, those ones who we can actually watch and see their life, those should be the ones who carry the most teaching influence in our lives. We gotta be careful. You will never meet your celebrity preacher. I love John Mark Comer. Elephant in the room, right? I love John Mark Comer. I love John Tyson. I love Christine Kane, Jen Wilkin, Charlie Dates, Matt Chandler. I listen to them all the time, but I've only met one of them. <laughs> and I've only heard about their life. I've never seen it. And so what I'm, what I'm, what I'm putting in front of you is a, is a caution that as we decide who gets to teach us the most, Let's be cautious about what is shaping us, who is shaping us most deeply. Not because any of those men and women are dangerous, I don't think so, I listen to them all the time. But we just simply can't know. And so if we're gonna be shaped, shaped deeply and taught, let's stick with the people we can watch. Third illustration, those are the, those are the first two, let's kinda linger on these last two. The next illustration that Jesus gives in this matter of choice is around two claims. There are those who, if you look at verses 21 through 23, there are those who carry a claim to knowing Jesus that in the end will be shown to be false. And those who carry a claim to knowing Jesus that will actually be affirmed and welcomed. Now this is an important passage because it is a terrifying one, if not read correctly. This, this passage alone, I have found myself pouring over this passage in anxiety. Anybody else? Yes, thank you. The rest of you are solid. <laughs> Will I be rejected? Do I really know him? Is all of my life just a mirage of faith without ever really knowing Jesus? This passage has the potential to create some great anxiety in us. But for those of us who have likewise poured over this passage in anxiety, like I have, can I just relieve you really quickly? Anxiety is not the intended consequence of what Jesus says here. Jesus did not give this illustration in order to shroud your faith in mystery making you just forever question whether you really know Jesus or not, but never really able to know up until the moment that it's too late. <laughs> That's not Jesus's intention. He's not doing this in order to make you anxious. And if we see the intention behind what Jesus says here, I, I really think it can relieve us from some of our spiritual anxiety. So Jesus here is, is trying to differentiate between those who know him and those who don't. In the core of his teaching is just a warning against those whose spiritual lives are built around presumption. Do you see that in the text? 
Those who are sent away from Jesus are marked by being presumptuous. They presume because they call him Lord, Lord, that they belong to Jesus. They presume because they have done mighty works like prophesying or casting out demons that they actually know Jesus. And friends, isn't presumption the opposite of anxiety? There's no indicator that these people Jesus sent away ever had a realistic concern about whether they really knew him or not. Which means this, those of you who are a ball of anxiety around whether you know Jesus or not, can I just tell you, that's a pretty good sign. Because the people who got sent away were not concerned, they were presumptuous. And so if you are concerned, that's a good sign. These people never were concerned about that. And so the fact that you care so much and think so much about whether you know Jesus or not is a good sign, friend. This passage shows this. Only those who know Jesus are actually concerned about whether they really know him. Jesus sets apart two claims. Those who claim to belong to him but don't and those who claim to belong to him and actually do. And he gives with the anxiety hopefully cleared out of your heart. He gives two things that give credibility to the claim of belonging to Jesus. First, he says this. He says that those who do the will of the Father, who is in heaven, are those who actually belong to him. If you wanna have credibility that reassures your faith, Jesus says the first way you can know is that you are someone who does the will of the Father. Now I know, here we go, your anxiety is already beginning to rise up again. You're thinking the will of the Father, Jesus is only talking about obedience here and your obedience to God seems to be pretty pitiful at times, right? And that's why you're anxious. But before you rush into anxiety, let's clarify what this will of the Father actually is. Jesus uses this phrase all the time throughout the Gospels and the consistent meaning behind what the will of the Father is, if you, want, if you look at it, revolves around belief. That as Jesus speaks of the will of his Father, it almost always comes back to the reality of belief. And so, so later in Matthew 12, Jesus is teaching some people when he gets interrupted by some other people telling him that his family outside is waiting for him. And Jesus replies by saying this, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. There's that phrase again, will of my father who is in heaven. It seems that whoever Jesus is with in that moment is doing the will of the father. But what are the people doing? They're listening to him. That's, liter that's literally all they're doing. They're not, they're not, there's no action going on. They're simply sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. They are receiving his teaching. And Jesus is not, there's not anything they're doing other than giving Jesus their attentive ear. And Jesus calls that, they're doing the will of my father right now. Or in, or in John 6, Jesus says this, for this is the will of my father, clear as could be, 
that everything, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you hear it too? It's all around belief. The Father who is in heaven wills that people believe in his Son whom he has sent. That's the will of the Father. What differentiates, here it is, what differentiates those who belong to Jesus and those who don't are those who satisfy God's desire for Jesus to be received as Savior. That's the will of the Father. Those who do the will of the Father are those who receive Jesus for who he claims to be, the Son of God who has come in the flesh in order to save us from our sins. That's the will of the Father. You doing that, friend? (laughs) You should be assured that you belong. Which leads straight into the next evidence of credibility that Jesus gives. Those who know him. If you wanna know whether your claim to Jesus to belong to him is actually real or not, do you know him? Person-to-person relationship. Which makes sense. Anybody who as anybody who follows the will of the Father and receives Jesus as a son of God, who's come in the flesh in order to save them, of course they draw themselves toward him in personal relationship. They know him. And Jesus here in Matthew, 20, or Matthew 7, 21 through 23, says all of that in contrast to those who used the name of Jesus for great spiritual spectacles. Did you notice that those Jesus sends away, the evidence they give for their claim revolves around what can be seen in public. A prophetic word to another person, it's public. Good Lord, casting out a demon, that's public. But you, 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 those are great spiritual spectacles, but, but notice they never bring up private prayer. They never bring up a relationship. Notice that they don't bring up private fasting. In other words, notice that they don't bring up any of the private spiritual life that Jesus commended to his disciples just one chapter before all of this. <laughs> Instead, they are in it for the spectacle. They don't know him, they just use him for their own sense of significance and spiritual clout. There are two claims. One that's real, one that's not. You use Jesus for your own personal significance and your own spiritual clout, it's a false claim. But if it revolves around a person-to-person relationship with Jesus that is born out of a recognition and belief that he is the son of God, who's come to save you from your sins, friend, that is every evidence that you need. That's every evidence that Jesus gives you to believe that you actually belong to him. There are two claims, those who belong to Jesus and those who don't. Now, the final illustration in one of Jesus's most famous. There are two houses, one that will stand in the day of trouble and one that will fall. I wanna read that section again. Look at, look at verse 24 with me. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall 
because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Two houses, one that will stand and one that will fall. There's one thing that these two houses have in common. Do you see in the text? A storm, <laughs> right? Both, both these houses get a storm that come across them. Both of these houses have strong winds and flooding rain that, that comes to test its durability. The storm comes for us all. But the lingering question of the illustration as Jesus closes his sermon is not whether you're going to encounter difficulty, but whether you'll be left standing after the inevitable storm comes. Will your faith make it? That's how Jesus concludes his sermon. When the storm comes, not if, but when the storm comes, will your faith make it or not? And the house that stands is made distinct from the house that falls by one thing. The practice of discipleship. Not the ideal of discipleship, but the practice of it. Not the intention of discipleship, but the practice of it. Not the acknowledgement of discipleship and that you need to be discipled by Jesus, but the practice of it. Jesus here ends his greatest sermon with a clear call to action. Either listen to what I've said and begin to put it into practice or move on. Anybody else feel that? Jesus ends his sermon saying, what are you gonna do about it? Will you, will you take this up and practice it? Friends, you, you've gotta hear me say this today. Christianity is not just a set of beliefs that you can check off a box and move on for. It's not a, Christianity is not just your personal therapeutic balm. It is some of those things. Christianity is certainly constructed and built and held up by certain beliefs that we hold. And Christianity is the most, I can tell you from personal experience, the most assuring, peace-giving thing in my life. My discipleship to Jesus is the source of my peace that wars against all of my natural anxiety. It is therapeutic for me. But it is so much more than that. Our faith is made up of doctrines and our faith is incredibly assuring and peacegiving, but it is not only those things, it is also a practice. It is a way of life. To identify yourself as a disciple of Jesus is not to just say that you believe a doctrine or that you've got some peace because of grace. No, to identify yourself as a disciple of Jesus is to place yourself under the way of life that he has spent his entire sermon unpacking and inviting you into. And we all, we all need to hear that because Jesus here says that if we don't practice what he's here taught, you won't stand. There's a stabilizing element to the practice of our faith. When we practice our faith, when we walk down the 
path of discipleship, it reinforces our foundation so that when the storm comes, we make it through. A practiced discipleship is a reinforced discipleship. It is sturdy. Is it immune to difficulty? No. The storm will come, but it is a, it is a sturdy discipleship that can actually endure. It's done the rare thing of bringing the teaching of Jesus into real life. And because of that, it is strong. It's not theoretical. And it's not even just emotional. It is real life. That is a discipleship that can make it. But the unpracticed faith, the one that simply gives an approving nod to the teaching of Jesus without any lifestyle change, that's the one that will fall. You can count on it. Can I speak really honestly here around a topic that is really hot and for good reason? I, I really believe that there are all kinds of reasons why people deconstruct their faith. All kinds of good reasons why people practice deconstruction. I believe that there's a healthy deconstruction. We are receiving the faith from a generation that got it wrong, like every other generation that has got it wrong, and like we will, as our generation, get it wrong. There's always some filtering and some deconstructing and some reanalyzing that needs to happen when we have received the faith. We've got to see where it's gone wrong, where preferences have been turned into demands. We've got to see that. There is a healthy deconstruction that rebuilds around what scripture actually says. But there is also an unhealthy destruction. And do you want to know what I've seen in every um, discouraging case of deconstruction? It has always been that someone is leaving a faith they stopped practicing long before that. And that is a warning for us that it is incredibly easy to leave a faith you've stopped practicing. It's easy to get out of that. And so, friends, we've got to practice the faith if we're going to be able to stand. And no, that's not legalism. That's discipleship. <laughs> when Jesus calls us into action, that's not him being legalistic, saying, hey, you better do this or else I'm not going to love you. No, grace is opposed to earning, not to effort, as Dallas Willard said. It is opposed to you earning the favor of God. It is not opposed to you seeking God. Grace actually prompts that energizes that. Following Jesus in real life and Jesus ending his sermon here for us to follow what he's taught is not legalism, it's discipleship. But we so often just excuse ourselves out of that and I just wanna warn you this morning, don't do that, friend. We drift, we, we, we don't pay attention because we wanna live just such a lax life, we drift. Listen to how the theologian D.A. Carson said this. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from, the grace, apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience 
and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Friends, seek the things of God. Listen to what Jesus has taught in all of this Matthew 5 through 7 and begin to place it into your real life. Don't move on, but place it into your real life. Practice it. Imperfectly, yes, but consistently, that's the way of discipleship. It's not perfection, it's just consistency. It's just coming back again to Jesus. And as we walk this way, friend, remember that it's not a way that you're trailblazing, it's not a way that we are inventing, but it is a person that we are following. So in all of this, as we seek to bring this into our real life, as we seek to build our house upon the rock by actually following Jesus in discipleship, we should be keeping our eyes on Jesus. And that's not just a quick gospel out. That's the truth. (laughs) That's not me just trying to be like, oh man, I was really heavy on them, so I better give them some gospel grace. No, you won't make it on the way. (laughs) You You won't make it. You won't keep going if you don't have your eyes set on Jesus, to see him in his grace and his love that does get you back up, that doesn't keep you down. Because that's so often what actually keeps us from following the way of Jesus, is that we get ashamed and we just give up. Okay, I'm, I'm just gonna sit here and sulk. But instead, if your eyes are on Jesus and you fall, you can get back up because there's grace to carry you forward. So we keep our eyes on Jesus. As we look at everything Jesus has taught us in these last couple chapters, some convicting for others, other pieces convicting for other people, whatever it is that landed on you throughout these two chapters, place it into your real life, but do not for a second take your eyes off of Jesus. Because it's actually when you take your eyes off of Jesus that you're actually beginning to stray. (laughs) Listen to this from the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The way is unutterably hard. And at every moment, we are in danger of straying from it. If we regard this way as one we follow in obedience to just some external command, in other words, without any real heart change, if we are afraid of ourselves all the time, it is indeed an impossible way. But if we behold Jesus Christ going on before, step by step, we shall not go astray. But if we worry about the dangers that beset us, if we gaze at the, road instead, at the road instead of him who goes before, we are already straying from the path. For he himself is the way, the narrow way and the straight gate. He and he alone is our journey's end. When we know that, we are able to proceed along the narrow way through the straight gate of the cross and on to eternal life. And there, the very narrowness of the road will increase our certainty. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung by the Nazi regime because of his discipleship to Jesus. You think his own resolve got him there? You think just conviction got him there? No, what got him there is what he tells us and commends to us. Look to Jesus. He is our teacher, of course, but he is also our great destination, our great hope. He is what he says there, our journey's end. (laughs) Let's follow him.
and watch him the whole way, friend. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I pray that you would help us to have a fresh vision of who Jesus is. Everything he's taught us here in Matthew 5 through 7 is such grace. So little of it would be intuitive to us, and so what a grace it is that he would come and teach, that he would come and redirect in order to get us onto the narrow path that actually leads to life. I thank you that he taught us this sermon this whole time. And I just pray for a fresh vision of who Jesus is, because yes, he went on the mount in order to teach us, but he also went on the mount, that small little hill outside of Jerusalem, in order to die for every single way that we have and will fail his Sermon on the Mount. Help us to rest in that grace. Help us to not use that grace. Help us to not cheapen it as if to think that gets us out of discipleship but let that be what actually moves us forward in discipleship. To follow your son on this narrow way, give us grace, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.